Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, February 14th, 2017, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Well, happy Valentine's Day, everyone. We have a few spots left for our March Starseed Quest, and our May Quest is now full. This Starseed Gathering is a soul family reunion in Arkansas, and eligibility requires having at least one star marking at galactic degree, which is 25, 26, or 27 degrees of any sign. This is a new four-day event redesigned to bring all star seeds to their next level of activation in the most powerful crystal energy on the planet. If you feel the call of the crystals and a desire to reunite with your starseed family, you can register for our Spring Equinox Athena's Birthday Gathering, which is March 17th through the 20th, and write to crystals, that's plural, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-S, at starseedhotline.com. Our very special guest this evening is author Judith Diana Winston. In 1980, Diana moved from San Francisco to Los Angeles thinking to expand her career as a fashion photographer, but life had other plans. Through a series of unexpected events, she soon found herself making two trips to Egypt. Following the second trip, a story began tugging on her, a story begging to be told. In fact, the heart of what was to become the keeper of the diary came roaring through her in four flurry-filled days of typing. When she read what she'd written, she was astonished. Not only did she feel the truth of her story, which went back to Atlantis, but also she found it was peppered with the words Pleiades and Pleiadian, neither of which had previously been a part of her vocabulary. However, as she would soon discover, these terms were to take on an increasing level of importance in her life and work. She spent 10 years visiting, photographing, and learning about many of Earth's ancient megalithic sacred sites, as well as swimming with wild dolphins. During this time, another book, Meditative Magic, The Pleiadian Glyphs, popped through. It's a meditation workbook and part of the story of The Keeper of the Diary. All of Diana's work is designed to assist in grounding higher dimensional frequencies onto the planet and contributing to the evolution of consciousness of humanity. You can find her book on Amazon and check out her website, which is thekeeperofthediarybook.com. We'd like to thank Jada and Vanya for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a comment or question for our guest and <laughs> hope you're staying warm up there, Vanya. She just got another um, two and a half feet of snow with more on the way. So um, we have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and it's a safe place to connect with other Starseeds, thanks to Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download our shows on iTunes or right here on Blog Talk Radio. And if you'd like to show show your support of our program, please click follow on our page here at Blog Talk and you'll get our weekly show notices. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888 881 
The stage one starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings in your natal astrological chart, and the stage two session is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. For those who need healing of any kind for yourself or your pets, Tammy's powerful remote sessions will make a difference. If you have a birthday coming up, you don't want to miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when it happens by requesting your solar return timing. And if you do want an interpretation of that chart, please order it at least two or three months ahead of your birthday to make sure you get it in before your 10 hours because we do have a waiting list. So uh, first this evening, I want to introduce Anastasia. Uh Uh-oh, the screen jumped. Hang on, girl. Anastasia (laughs) and the Starseed News. There you go. Hey, girl. Hi, good evening, Ariel. Everybody, Hello. great to be with you. You got me back in a hurry. That was that didn't take you long. <laughs> well, uh, I disappeared and I was back. That's a very comforting feeling. Somehow, I got scared for a second. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you didn't disappear. You just moved. No, I thought it was fading into another dimension. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, we've got lots of news, so I guess I better get down to it. Uh, about the sun tonight, uh, uh, spaceweather.com informs us that we have a co-rotating interaction region. Mm. Well, forecasters are saying that there's a 45% chance of polar geomagnetic storms tomorrow when a co-rotating interaction region is expected to hit Earth's magnetic field. Now, uh, that is uh, CIR for short, co-rotating interaction region. And these zones, uh, they say, uh, are created between slow and fast-moving solar winds. They say they often contain uh, contain strong magnetic fields uh, that do a good job of creating auroras. Now, speaking of auroras, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here. Uh, a couple of stories because this is this should follow. Um, speaking of auroras, NASA is going to create artificial clouds in space in order to understand auroras. This is a news release from NASA itself, came out a few days ago. Um, a, NASA, a NASA sounding rocket is going to be launched from the Poker Flat Research Range in Alaska uh, up until March 3rd. And they didn't give you exactly what day. They didn't say what day. They just said up until March 3rd they plan on launching this thing. And this rocket will form white artificial clouds during a very brief 10-minute flight. Now, the rocket is one of five being launched uh, January through March, each carrying instruments to explore the aurora and its interactions with Earth's upper atmosphere and ionosphere. Now, scientists at NASA's Goddard Space Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, are explaining that electrical fields drive the ionosphere, which, in turn, are predicted to set up enhanced neutral winds within an aurora arc. Follow that? You all got that? <laughs> yeah. I'm not telling you how to bake chocolate chip cookies here, so you all got to pay attention to this. Well, anyway, this is an experiment that seeks to understand the height-dependent processes that create localized jet streams within the aurora. Now, I'm no scientist, and I don't know a heck of a lot about this. I follow it. Uh, As far as spaceweather.com and other sites that talk about the aurora and um, our magnetic field. You know, I just wonder... Uh, this sudden or rather abrupt interest in maybe getting in to understand these auroras because they have been so frequent and so bright 
and there have been lots of speculation regarding the Earth's magnetic field uh, as it may uh, be, mm, let's say, made evident by auroras. So one just has to wonder if there's some, somehow that's connected. But to make artificial clouds in space, that's really interesting. I mean, how are they going to do that? No atmosphere. Hmm, I suppose I ought to look into that, but I thought I'd pass that along. We They talk about, you know, we all talk about weather seeding and the things they do and the contrails and stuff, and some people say, oh, hogwash, that's not real, but by golly, now they're making clouds in space. So that might make some bells ring for a few of you out there listening to this. Anyway, NASA is also reporting uh, that if there is life beyond Earth somewhere in the solar system, they think that Europa, Jupiter's moon, is probably where it's most likely to be found. Now, observations have indicated that the Jupiter moon has a salty subsurface ocean, and as we assume from our life on Earth, uh, where there is water, there is life. Well, now NASA plans a mission to send a lander to the icy moon. NASA has three key science goals for a future lander mission on Europa, It's going to search for life on this moon, assessing its habitability by analyzing material from the surface. And they're going to characterize Europa's surface and subsurface to support future robotic missions there. NASA says, this mission would significantly advance our understanding of Europa as an ocean world, even in the absence of any definitive signs of life, and would provide the foundation for the future robotic exploration of Europa. And we're talking about one of Jupiter's moons, guys. We're getting out there. Yeah. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I always wonder when I read stuff like this is what else are they doing that we don't know about? Right. <clears throat> well, at least 749 earthquakes have hit Turkey since the 6th of February. 749. Turkey is a really a earthquake pro- prone zone. I mean, they have lots of quakes in Turkey, but 749 since the 6th of February is a lot. And they say that a number of buildings in the region have been damaged. Many local people have had to set up tent cities uh, in the villages that have been severely damaged by the quakes. 749. That's a lot. God, in just a few days. Yeah. And by the way, uh, I left out some of the details, but most of these were five and six pointers. I mean, these were not little bitty one point things. No, they were moderate earthquakes. Wow. Well, you've all heard it on the national news, and I picked this up last week. And uh, so even though you may have heard it, we're going to talk about uh, Oroville Dam. Um, the spillway of the nation's tallest dam, as you probably already know, has been crumbling amid the storms and the rain uh, that have stricken California. Last year at this time, we were talking about a terrible drought and possible evacuation of the state due to no water. Well, here we are now, February 14th, and state engineers last Thursday discovered new damage to the Oroville Dam Spillway, which is in Northern California, just a few miles north of Sacramento, maybe 30-some miles or so. And uh, chunks of concrete went flying off the emergency spillway, and it created a 200-foot-long, 30-foot-deep hole. When you look at pictures of that, you can see where the dirt underneath the spillway, which is a big, uh, like a slide of concrete coming down from the front of the dam, erosion, uh, the earth underneath this concrete spillway had eroded, taking the concrete with it. 
Well, at that time, as I was tracking the news, I do this all week long. I check the news every day. And last week, uh, officials said that the dam was safe and that it didn't threaten communities downstream. This was on Saturday. I believe it was Saturday. It may have been Friday. Anyway, I thought to myself as I was reading this, holy cow, you know, how can they say it's safe? Uh, that looks like a real serious event waiting to happen. And in the meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, after they told people it was safe and they didn't have to worry about it, they did manage to take uh, the native salmon uh, that were hatching in a state hatchery. They loaded up all the baby fish into tanker trucks and uh, to try to save them from the mud, and they took those away uh, from the disaster area. So they thought they ought to move the salmon, but they didn't think they needed to mention it to people. Well, now, uh, incidentally, you guys, uh, Lake Oroville is a very important factor in California's water supply, and uh, maybe you've heard that as well. Anyway, then on Sunday, uh, they issued evacuation warnings uh, that told residents that the erosion could result in a large, uncontrolled releases of water from the lake. And uh, some of the uh, mainstream television news is reporting over about 200,000 people. What I could get from the L.A. Times was around 100,000 people evacuated. But in any event, we know that there were a lot of people evacuated. Uh, Yuba County, Yuba City, Marysville City, lots of people were evacuated. They closed stores. They had to open shelters. They said that gas stations were just packed with cars as residents tried to escape town. And apparently... Many of them felt like they had very little time to get out, a a window of possibly three hours. People were really panicked, uh, not knowing whether that dam was going to break and and flood them in a lot of water. Uh, There were no reports of looting, which is amazing, and that's a good thing. And since uh, they issued the evacuation orders, the report is that uh, there has been a significant decrease in the water coming in over the emergency spillway because they were trying to drain uh, the water to the back of the dam, the lake. So as it stands now, uh, everyone's holding their breath. The people have not been able to go back to their dwellings. Uh, They are uh, anticipating more rain uh, later this week, tomorrow, starting tomorrow. So um, don't know what's going to happen. So far they have it contained, trying to repair it with sandbags and and boulders and such as that, and uh, I think a lot depends on how much rain they get for the rest of this week. So um, we wish those people well who are outside of their homes in mass numbers and suffering a lot of economic and personal stress because of that and hope that they get that fixed. Which, uh, point being, though, that, um, you know, in this country we wonder how things get like that. How do things get ignored? How does things get allowed to decay? How does infrastructure get to, you know, to that point? It's not the only thing uh, in this country that needs to be repaired. Um, We're going to see more and more of that as time goes along. And uh, we want to spend a lot of money for a lot of things in America, but um, sometimes we don't take care of what needs to be taken care of. So, don't know about that, but that's... That's where it's at in California at this point. And in Australia, they're having a terrible time of it, guys. They are having so much heat. They have are now battling uh, 50 fires as a result of this heat wave. And it's sparking warning and blackout uh, concerns among the Australian people. And uh, out of Sydney, the news is that Australian emergency services were bracing against potentially catastrophic fire conditions Saturday 
as firefighters battled nearly 50 blazes in the state of New South Wales. And they're having a heat wave that's just sweeping over the entire east coast of the country, up to almost 118, 119 degrees Fahrenheit in some areas. Can you imagine that? Wow. Has anyone out there ever been in 119 degree heat? Wow. It's really severe. They are roasting down there. And uh, day after day, there's uh, news articles about that heat wave in Australia. Well, in Indiana, did you all hear this? If you've been in the right parts of Indiana, uh, law enforcement and volunteer firemen have been investigating calls from people who live in southern Whitley County in Indiana uh, because uh, they heard at least two loud explosion noises that rattled their houses and scared people. Now, those calls came into emergency dispatch centers on Saturday. Responders investigated those calls about the huge booms and the shaking, but they weren't able to find any sources of it. And homeowners reported that the noises were like explosions and shook their houses uh, severely. Well, they discounted uh, sonic booms as a possibility of this, and uh, there are no Air National Guard exercises going on. Nobody knows what caused it, but that is not all. There were also booms heard in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania, or excuse me, eastern Pennsylvania, uh, that rattled dishes and shook houses, and no one yet has been able to track down the source of those booms. This goes on all the time. I don't always report it, but since there were two right side by side, I thought I'd share it with you. So Indiana and Pennsylvania, any of you go through that or experience that? Did you feel it? Did you hear it? Well, Indonesia's Sinabung volcano is uh, carrying on again. Uh, it's uh, Sinabung is on uh, Indonesia's Sumatra Island and has been spewing clouds of smoke and ash high into the air. And this is the latest in the, its series of violent eruptions. So um, they are uh, <laughs> really having a time there. They say that activity levels have increased in the last week. It's been shooting hot ash clouds into the sky. That would make it hard to breathe, you know it? And uh, they say that despite the eruptions, the local villagers are trying to get along with their precarious existence there at the base of the mountain. Many of them have no place else to go, so they trudge along, breathing the ash and uh, living in that uncertainty. Well, uh, we've talked about the Dakota Pipeline before, and it's been a while since probably much has uh, been said about it. I want to bring you all up to date as to where that now stands. Um, so we'll go through uh, kind of a, a history of what happened and where it now stands. Now, you all remember that um, the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, met with opposition by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, who argued that the pipeline would uh, run under the Missouri River, River Reservoir and threaten its water supply, among other things. Now, the company, the pipeline company, insisted that the system would be safe, but as you all know, thousands of people gathered from around the country to support the tribe and protest the project. And there were clashes that went on. Um, they said that nearly 700 people were arrested. Some of those clashes were violent. And then uh, the opponents to the pipeline did win a big victory uh, right at the end of the Obama administration in December. Uh, federal agencies... Uh, uh, that have authority over the Missouri River said that they would not give permission for the pipe to be laid under that reservoir until an environmental study was done. And that did stand to delay this project by as much as two years. 
Um, of course, the people that own the pipeline company called Energy Transfer Partners uh, said the move was political. They said it was foul, uh, a foul move. And as you all know, Trump had signaled uh, his support for the pipeline. And uh, I don't know if all of you know this, but he owned stock in that uh, particular pipeline, at least at one time. There's reports that he since sold it. I know not. But any event, after he took office, uh, he ordered that that uh, previous decision to withhold um, construction be reconsidered. So what what's just happened? Well, uh, after uh, Trump's directive, the Army Corps of Engineers granted permission uh, late last Wednesday for this co- pipeline company to proceed with the construction under the lake. So the company has started drilling immediately with the expectation that they will be finished with the pipeline in about two months. But pipeline opponents, opponents are not stopping just yet. Now, on Thursday last, the Cheyenne River Sioux of South Dakota, uh, which had earlier joined the Standing Rock uh, uh, Sioux's lawsuit, asked the federal judge to stop the work. And uh, so they are still trying to protest. Now, this whole protest captured the entire world's attention for months last year, and that encampment swelled in size. But there's only a skeleton of that camp remains. The winter was really severe. A lot of people had to go home. The Standing Rock Sioux had asked many people to leave. They say that fewer than 300 people are in that camp now, and uh, they are being warned to leave because of spring floods. Uh, but that doesn't mean uh, that they're going to leave. They say that uh, they're planning to stay, to continue actions in North Dakota. Uh, they're continuing to fight this, uh, they say, in the courtroom. So that's to bring you all up to date as to where it stands and how it how it went. So we'll see what happens. Have you ever wondered what happens to all of those Olympic buildings that they that they build following the Olympics when the whole world moves in for the television cameras and then the whole world moves out? Ever wondered about that? Well, in Rio de Janeiro, um, it's a ghost town. Rio de Janeiro, as you know, pulled off last year's Olympics. And uh, at the time, they claimed that they kept crime at bay and... Uh, uh, you know that uh, they could afford it, and uh, they were going to do a good job with the uh, all this venue that they would have left over. But six months after the first games, they are in serious trouble. Rio de Janeiro organizers owe creditors about forty million dollars. Four of those brand new arenas in the main Olympic Park can't find management, and ownership has been dumped onto the federal government in Rio de Janeiro. Now, the stadium, the site of the opening and closing ceremony, was vandalized because stadium operators and the government and Olympic organizers were fighting over their $1 million in unpaid electricity bills, and so uh, electricity was cut off to this landmark, and it was looted. People carried away, carried away chairs, uh, stadium seats, flat-screen televisions, took everything out of there that they could get their hands on. And uh, about that Olympic golf course... They paid a lot of money. You know, it cost them $20 million to build it. There's only a handful of people to even play on that golf course. I mean a handful. And uh, there's no money for upkeep. And uh, the state of Rio de Janeiro is uh, months late paying teachers, hospital workers. They're behind on pensions. They have record-breaking crime. And uh, they say that during the Olympics, the city was really trying to hard, just uh, trying hard just to hold things together. 
But the minute the Olympics were over, everything went to smash. Why did I bring up this story? Well, it's sort of an example, kind of a microcosm of how the things in the world can be sometimes. That we can spend so much money and so much energy on putting up appearances. When behind the scenes, well, it's just not that way. And it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, Starseed, if people would spend money in a way that would help others. We could solve a lot of problems. We would do that instead of being so concerned about putting up fronts, masks. Pretty things to look at for a few days and then let it go. Well, archaeologists have discovered a brand new Dead Sea Scrolls cave. Now, I was hoping when I read this that, oh boy, we found some new Dead Sea Scrolls. I can pass this along, right? Well, it's not exactly... Well, archaeologists uncovered the cave. And it's a cave that once, a long time ago, housed Dead Sea Scrolls. But they're calling this discovery one of the most important in 60 years. And this discovery was made by the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, said that the scrolls were missing from the cave. They're gone, but they're hoping that they're going to find others, other scrolls. Now, uh, the cave was discovered west of Qumran in the occupied West Bank. And although it didn't have any manuscript, there's ample evidence of their earlier presence. They found fragments of pottery in which these scrolls were placed, and they found the leather straps that used, that were used to fasten the scrolls. And these caves date from the 3rd century B.C. to the 1st century A.D. And they're on the hunt. They say there are plenty more caves to explore and hopefully more scrolls and uh, parchments to be found. Isn't that something? When wow. you think about that, that it seems like our whole world has been mapped, right? Well, we're always finding new things uncovered, and they are uh, believing that there are additional places where more manuscripts are hidden. And, hidden. and they're considering finding this cave uh, is uh, sort of a, a landmine. There, I mean, a, a bonanza. Excuse me. Um, that is very encouraging to them that they're going to find more caves where maybe the parchments haven't been looted. And um, in Iran, they have found an ancient treasure trove that has uh, uh, contained the remains of a giant. Archaeologists in western Iran discovered ancient artifacts, including the remains of an extremely tall man who lived more than 1,500 years ago. Now, archaeologists were excavating this site, and they've discovered a load of historically important artifacts dating back that long. In fact, even prior to 1500 years. They say that some of these uh, go back to 224 AD. They say the most exciting discovery is the remains of a very tall man, believed to be maybe eight feet tall. And they found artifacts dating back uh, uh, from about 550 BC. Can you imagine that? So it's not just 1500 years. It goes even back further than that, apparently. Um... This treasure trove was uh, contained artifacts from several different time periods. It may have been something that uh, had been occupied again and again and again. Maybe they're getting deeper into the soil and finding older stuff as they go, but uh, a giant about eight feet tall. So, And here is a wonderful story to end tonight's news. I just love this story. You guys have got to check this out on the Internet. This is uh, something called a vertical forest. 
urban vertical forest. Check it out. Uh, an Italian architect has a plan to steer the world away from glistening glass skyscrapers. He's going to cover them with trees. There's pictures on the Internet, guys. Check this out. These are called vertical forests that reimagine buildings as enormous air purifiers for smoggy cities. The trees, plants, and shrubs will offer shade on sunny days and act as cozy blankets during the winter, allowing tenants to reduce their electricity use. Also, you guys, they're really, really pretty. Now, this architect unveiled his plans this week for two vertical forests in China. And the buildings <clears throat> that he's doing are following the prototype of his three, <clears throat> excuse me, his two tree-covered to towers that he already built in Milan, Italy. There's pictures of that on the Internet. Big old high towers with trees growing out of the sides. Now, they chose trees that... Um, uh, shed their leaves in winter for one side of the building, and the other side of the buildings, they chose uh, trees that uh, didn't lose their leaves, depending on on the sunlight and the wind. Uh, they say that the leaves create a kind of microclimate that reduces summertime temperatures and also uh, attracts birds. They planted about 21,000 plants on the two towers in Italy, and that's the equivalent of five acres of a real forest spiraling high into the sky. It's an amazing it. thing to see. It's They say that they have 22 species of birds nesting on the two towers. And, did I mention, out of those 21,000 plants, there's 100 different species. And we're talking trees, guys, big, full-size trees. This is an ecosystem inside of a super dense and polluted metropolitan environment in Italy. And they're talking that the, or they're telling us that the trees... These 21,000 trees and plants uh, are actually recycling uh, the smog and adding oxygen and clearing the air, reducing smog. It's an amazing thing. So do, if you, if you can, you guys, check that out. It's, it's an amazing thing to look at. And I'd never heard of it before. And um, it appears that in China they are discussing... Uh, uh, building cities that are th that's what they have I mean these are all the buildings are tree covered they'll just do uh, these kinds of cities that have vertical forests uh, wow is that I love super that. that's cool yeah. is that cool yeah. inventive as heck amazing and they hired uh, uh, botanists and people to come in to, to they had to uh, analyze the dirt it was very particular they had to have just the right weight and density um, it was really a feat of engineering to get the kind of soil that would hold the roots on the buildings and that wouldn't uh, cause the trees to um, blow down in the winds. You know, high heights uh, would be a risk for the trees. But they managed to succeed, and uh, what an amazing engineering thing. It's just really a – think about, you know, the ancient seven wonders of the world. This is like, like that. Really cool. So check it out. Cool. I'm going to look that up. Uh, yeah, it's it's cool. All right, well, that's it for tonight's news, and I uh, look forward to being with you again next week, Ariel. Happy Valentine's Day to everybody, because from my heart to yours, I send you lots of love and wishes for a wonderful, light-filled week. So we'll catch you again next week. Great. Well, thank you so much, Anastasia, for the Starseed News, and uh, I'm going to go check that vertical forest out. <laughs> so um, thanks again, Anastasia. So now I am going to um, get Lavender's mic open 
and our special guest, uh, Diana Winston. Let me get your microphone open. Okay, welcome to the show. Diana, we're happy to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. That's great. Well, Lavendar, are uh, you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Okay. Now, do you go by Judith or by Diana? Which do you I actually prefer? go by Diana, unless you're saying my whole long name, which is okay. Judith All Diana right. Winston. Well, I've got to tell you that when I started reading your book, I could not put it down. The inauguration was happening in Washington, and I got into the book and said, you know what, I just want to get into this book for the next three days. And that's exactly what I did. I didn't want to, I didn't want to sleep. <laughs> I just wanted to be in this book. And after I finished it, I called you, and, um, and we talked for some time. And what I realized was that you and I are about the same age, and it took both of us like 25 years to hold on to a story and then finally write it and release it. And it gave me a lot of hope for those of us that have been on this planet for a very long time waiting for the activation of other star seeds to rise up and, and, be, and be known. And I think that your book is probably one of the, uh, one of the books that, that will probably propel star seed movement very far into the future. So, Diana, I am just so pleased that you um, found us and gave me the book to read, and I have now probably given it to over 20 people just this past week. I'll call people up and I'll tell them, I say, get your pencil, write this down, you've got to order this book right now, and, and I hope that they have done that. So with that, just kind of tell us a little bit about your, your earlier life and, and how much that you have gone through to be who you are to write this book. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that would be a whole show in itself. Um, well... I would say and this is probably pretty common amongst starseeds, whether they know they're starseeds or not, that their earlier life is kind of a little bumpy. They, you know, experience being different a lot, um, you know, not quite fitting in. And especially, you know, going back a ways when we were younger, um, so it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't always an easy time. It was sort of trying to sort out fitting in to a world that in many ways didn't make too much sense to me. So, you know, I was here, <laughs> so I sort of continued on forward. I had some very interesting things as a child that I still can't say whether they really happened or, or not. Um, when I was very young, I, I had these people that would follow me around the house that were from another planet because I was always explaining things to them. I was telling him, you know, this is what we use this for, this is what we use that for. And it was so real for me that I used to excuse myself and go into the closet to change my clothes because, you know, I was a girl and I uh, didn't want them to see me naked. And this continued on until I was about 10 or 11, and then it stopped. And as the time of writing this book and different things that, that came up, 
um, it brought a lot of it back, and I've I still can't say for certain whether on what level that was true. Um, I know it felt very real, and I find it very fascinating that I specifically knew as a small child that somehow these beings were from another planet, and I felt very safe with them. So that's just kind of a curiosity. And then, you know, like like most of us, I went on with life, you know, trying to find my place in things, who I was, what I was supposed to do. It was never really easy. Um, it, 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 it seemed even then, though I didn't know that I understood it this way, that in some way I was ahead of my time, you know, things that I would talk about or be interested in maybe five to ten years later would suddenly become popular. So it was more just a feeling of kind of like being a fish out of water and not quite fitting in with my birth family, but kind of, you know, what do you do? You're a child. You just sort of do your best. And I would say that, you know, with the way that the book came about and that whole experience sort of put put a different slant on all of that for me because I had really just looked at it through sort of family systems, you know, understanding what a first child goes through, certain kinds of things. But I really think that I, I mean, it was almost a joke because my mother actually once told somebody uh, that, that she thought I was from another planet. So it was, um, I, I say this because I think it's really important for all of the listeners to hear as well, because I think probably many of them went through the experience of being the outsider. You know, Diana, one of the things that I've been talking about this past week, and it really came to me strong, is if you're not bipolar, schizophrenic, and about to lose your mind, you're probably not a starseed. <laughs> kind of have I mean it's like we go through so much before yeah. we settle down and 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 understand that we have come to the planet to make the difference uh with extraterrestrial help either in our bloodlines in our records or whatever it is, but I'm really kind of knowing that if you're not about half crazy, you're probably not a star seed. I would have <laughs> to agree with that because um for sure, my way of processing things as a younger person was just extremely different than other family members or friends. Uh, so that would line right up with that. You know, I think when you were talking about the um, the ETs that were following you around in, in your room, in your house, they probably... <laughs> um, had permission to come and work with you because you agreed to do this before you were ever born. So you pro- it was probably a team that was, you know, probably coming to do some adjustments to help you um, get through whatever you needed to get through so that, that after 2012 that you'd be able to really, you know, fly with this story. Yeah, yeah, I've thought that same kind of thing. I mean, you know, as I've told people at different times about my childhood and things, and they'll go like, well, that's really weird. What did you mean when you thought they were, you knew they were from another planet? And I said, well, I just knew it. You know, I just 
I knew it, and I knew they were my friends. So, yeah, I would agree with that. So, um, so what inspired you to write Keeper of the Diary? And and is some of the characters in your book are they ba- based on real people? Yes, many of the characters are based on real people. And what inspired me was, uh, as Ariel mentioned in the beginning, I had been living in San Francisco and working as a fashion photographer. And, you know, life was pretty good. And I kind of almost overnight just got this idea that I needed to move to Los Angeles, um, that it would be good for my work which actually friends told me at the time, they said, that's crazy, there's no, there's no fashion industry in Los Angeles. You know, maybe bathing suits, but there's no real fashion industry. You should think about moving to New York. But it was like I was set on, on moving to Los Angeles, which I did. And it turned out all my friends were right. I couldn't get any work. So the first nine months were extremely difficult. I didn't know anybody. I was running around on interviews. I was constantly being told why my work wasn't appropriate for what they were doing. I was very frustrated. Um, but then, in a, not quite in the way that I told in the story of the book, I used certain situations and fictionalized them because it was a faster way of telling important material um, that in real life sometimes takes a little longer and meanders more. Uh, But long story short is an opportunity came up after about nine months uh, that turned out giving giving me a chance to go to Egypt, which was very interesting because I had never particularly, I mean, I thought Egypt was fascinating, but I didn't know that much about it. But I had never been out of the the continental United States. So for me to end up taking this trip and then actually returning 18 months later to Egypt was, it it was like it changed the entire direction of my life, which is obvious because shortly after that second trip, when I came back, there was a story truly tugging on me that had to do with some information that I had learned um, about a a real person who I called David in the book. That wasn't his real name, and I never actually met him. But I learned some things about him that fascinated me, and it just kind of started to play in my mind. And within a few months of returning from that second trip, I started jotting down some notes, and I decided I really – I had never I, I had written short stories and things before, but I wasn't really a writer. I had always been told by psychics, "Oh, you, you're you're a writer," and I thought, "Well, I probably could be. I read enough, but I didn't have anything to write about." And then suddenly, I did, and I took the opportunity to go to a friend's bed and breakfast in the mountains, and this was just prior to computers, so I had an electronic typewriter. And my friend gave me a her room that was surrounded on three sides by glass in the trees. And I started writing. It was a really amazing experience because I would get up in the morning. It was nice that I was staying someplace with other people, but it was also nice that I had this very private spot of my own. 
So I would have breakfast with them in the morning, and then I would go up, and she had set up a uh, card table um, with my uh, electronic typewriter, and I would just sit there and write from morning until I was so exhausted I couldn't sit on the chair anymore. And that went on for four days. I hardly talked to anybody. I would go down and have dinner with people, but I didn't talk to anybody about what I was writing. And then I sat down and I read it, and I went, oh, my God. Yeah. This is That's what really... I said all the way through the book. Oh, my God. I mean, every my God. I was Who saying are these? Now, I've come to call them Pleiadians, so I don't know if they're Pleiadians, Pleiadians, but I kept seeing Pleiades, Pleiadians, and I went, what exactly, I think that's a constellation, the one they call the seven. I didn't know anything about it. I had never been interested. I had never heard about it. And basically what poured through in those four days was the essence of the diary itself, which went all the way back to Atlantis. And it, it blew my mind. I had really no frame of reference for a lot of the things that were in it. I had never been exposed to any of that material. And well, Diana, I want you to know that uh, I have a lot of, of, of information about Atlantis, and, and when I started reading what you had written about Atlantis, it was 100% right on, everything that I had been shown years before. It's like you were, you were part of a continuing story that I had already started uh, working on back in 1980. Wow. Cause this, when I, I have first not started, completed was, the Atlanta well, story myself. I have, I have it recorded on uh, tape. I have uh, five different uh, generations of people tra- that I track, the family of five generations that I have tracked, and uh, an amazing, um, amazing story that will come out of this. But everything that you wrote about just dovetailed exactly what, what I was shown um, back in 1980, so I was very thrilled to see the confirmation of, of my own material. Yeah, well, it's very interesting to me to hear that, and I have heard that from a few other people that have said, you know, this is exactly anything that I've ever seen about Atlantis. This exactly, uh, you know, is the same, it's a continuation of the same story. So obviously we were all tuning in to the same source if we were all getting the same information. So one of the things that uh, that uh, really lit me up reading the book was the way that you would be uh, led to to the ley lines and to the different sacred sites, and and how that they would actually use your physical body to uh, realign the ley lines. I just thought that was just fascinating to me. Can you give us a little bit more information about that? At some point, it began to, I began to understand. I mean, the whole thing was like a mystery that I was involved in, but I didn't really know what it was. It was just kind of um, unfolding. Um, I, 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 I both learned things by writing, and the writing itself led me also to experiences. So I began to have the experience on at different of the sites, and it built of of feeling energy, which I had never really thought much about before. Um, and then at some point, I think it was really Stonehenge, where it really occurred to me 
that I was actually, who would I say, carrying energy, like I think I call it in the book, cross-pollinating, like taking energy from one space that was actually being held within my body and, and then being sort of compelled to take the next trip and mingling those energies and in that way doing, you know, and I'm sure I was not alone in this, um, that there are others that would come forward and tell you a similar story. We're reactivating the lines of energy that, that are the veins, the life veins of the planet. Yeah, the crystal grid. The planet's crystal grid, exactly, because that's what it is. I mean, the planet is like a giant crystal, and it has these lines that crisscross and interweave. And uh, as I mentioned in the book, I became aware of different, different, different sites in a sense. Well, let me just say that the, the stones I began to feel were like, like acupuncture needles on the Earth's energy grid and so different places had different functions and I'm sure that the ancients who originally built those sites were very aware of that yeah right so what are your what is your favorite spot of all the places that you've been do you have a favorite well I have two favorites two and a half favorites uh Egypt Egypt was very much like coming home. Uh, it was the first time I went there was in it was in February of 1981, and it was really cold. And I remember we were out there in the morning by the Great Pyramids, waiting to be let in, and it was freezing. And I hadn't I somehow thought going to the going to Egypt, the desert, it'll be hot. So I did not have the right clothing at all. And I remember sort of holding myself back up against the pyramid while we were waiting for the keeper of the pyramid who was going to let us, uh, this group that I was with in, and feeling warmed by it. And I thought to myself, I've been, this is like coming home. So Egypt, I would say, was number one. Number two, because it was the most unusual place that I've been, was Tijuanaco in Bolivia. It's right across the um, the lake, Lake Titicaca, from... You have to understand, back in the days before there was a, um, a Peru and Bolivia, these sites were built by similar peoples and were connected with one another. But Tijuanaco is extremely unusual. It has, an, it has a very un, unearthly energy to it. And there's a sunken courtyard called the Kaleasa. And it has embedded in the stonework, and if anybody looks on my website and they look under sacred sites, there's a lot of images. And you'll see a, a picture or two that actually show this. There are different types of faces um, placed in amongst these uh, uh, brick-like rocks, rocks that are cut into brick, brick type of uh, shapes. And I remember hearing at the time that 
this was these were representative of all of the races on the planet and then some wow so the and it's very interesting the place is very old they haven't been able to carbon date certain parts of it because i guess you can't carbon date natural materials but the local indians the aymara indians their name for it translates as the place that was already here So it gives a different kind of ancientness to it. It was just there's something just, and it's reflected, that was where my camera kind of went nuts and created some images, multiple exposures and things that I felt were really created by the energy of the site at the time that it happened. I was very nervous, and if anybody you know who reads the book will see, because I didn't know whether all my film was being ruined. I didn't know what was going on. But in essence, by the end of it, I, I felt these were gifts from the site, from the energy of the site. Oh, absolutely. Tell us more about your photography work and, and how you discovered the black and white images that you talked about in your book. Oh, okay. Well, I had started doing um, this hand painting with black and white uh, on on black and white photographs, and I would generally blow pieces up very large. So any of the pieces that people look at in the gallery on the site, they're they're good size, like thirty by forty, or if they're a longer, you know, twenty by thirty. Um, so they're not little small pictures, but I began to practice with it, it, back in the day before there was such a thing as color photography. Apparently, they used to hand paint little bits of like rosy cheeks on people, and you know, color in their lips to bring a black and white photo alive. Well, I had actually met somebody who did some of that years before, and it wasn't until I went to, started traveling, and something began, I called him, I said, what were you using to paint those pictures? And so he gave me his formula, and then I actually came out with another formula of my own, where I take uh, oil paints and I put them into a gel medium and I use mica and metallic powders so that the it's painted over but it's translucent so it becomes this combination of being a photograph and a painting and often people that will come into my house and look at the work they can't figure it out it's like it looks like a painting because obviously some of the colors I use are not the color that if you were to see the thing, like the pyramids, you were to see that in reality, would not be that color. But but it still manages to have some a frequency to it that the colors never bother anybody. But it looks, people think they're paintings, but then they look too realistic to be paintings. So it's kind of a combo and I think has really worked amazingly well with these sacred site images. I had somebody who came, and this was a really wonderful compliment. She said, 
two things. She said, first of all, she says, you know, I was in Egypt. She said, but I couldn't really appreciate the, the Sphinx and the pyramids as much as I wanted to because there were so many people there and there was litter. And she said, somehow looking at your pieces, because I was very careful that there were no humans in the image, uh, except for one where there's a guy on horseback, but he's minuscule, very tiny in the picture, and actually gives it a, a point of reference to how huge the pyramids are. But she said two things. She said, I feel in looking at, at, at some of your work that it's more real than really being there. And she said, it's as if you've brought these places back to life. And it was like, wow, that really touched my heart. Because I couldn't have asked for somebody to say something better. Yeah, I agree. So I know in the book um, that your your uh, heroine is, her name is what, Cassis? Cassie. It's Cassandra, but they, we call her Cassie. Yes, Cassie that she's like a modern-day Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Can you kind of expand on this? Well, yeah. Um, that's an, always an interesting way uh, to describe it because, you know, here if we remember The Wizard of Oz. Here's Dorothy, you know, in Kansas. And I, I think, and I don't really remember for sure, because it's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but it may even be that in that in The Wizard of Oz the – beginning parts are in black and white and maybe when she goes to Oz it's in color or that may be something that I've just imagined because I've thought so much how would I visualize visualize, um, my book in the same instance but you know she goes to she leaves Kansas and goes to this place where it's like none of the old rules work Everything is sort of upside down from the way she's taught life is. So she's in this really alternate reality, and very much in a sense, that's what it's like for Cassie. Um, She goes a bit reluctantly, um, not really, which I did purposely because I wanted people to be able to really go on the journey with her no matter where they were starting out. So she starts out a bit of a skeptic who only goes because it's a job, and so she's being paid as a photographer to to shoot these images for a group. And yet once she starts on on this trip, the very beginning, her first trip to Egypt, it's like she's not in Kansas anymore. (laughs) Right. Also I noticed that, this character is half Arab and half Jewish. Was there a reason for making her that way? Definitely. I figured <laughs> with everything we've got, and this was before we have the craziness even that's going on currently um, with different um, uh, nationalities or, or histories, um, but I figured if I could make her half Arab and half Jewish, since that has been such a long-standing struggle, if I could merge those two things that some people think of as like polar opposites, if I could merge that into one character and then she could play the role that she does, and I won't say a lot because I don't want to ruin anything for you know, people who are currently reading the book or will read the book and give too much away, but I, 
if I could give her that background and then she would achieve the things that she ended up achieving, it's like making a really broad statement to the world about peace. Yeah. So yeah, it was very much thought out. It was very calculated on my part. Um, I had many things as the writing continued that I wanted this book to accomplish. And certainly the breaking down of inner and outer borders was one of them. Yeah. Now you you write about the, the Pleiadians and you talk about uh, the way the the glyphs um, came to you, and the copy that you sent to me, I use them every day. By the way, oh like, great! We yeah, haven't talked I, about that. I'm delighted. Well, what I do is I put I, I I put them out on the bed, and I close my eyes and then take my hands over them and I say, okay, what is the message from the Pleiades today? And in my hand, I kind of use it like a a dowsing, you know, and I just drop. Mm-hmm. Pick. And absolutely every time I do it, something happens that day that has something to do with what I read. Yeah, I'm <laughs> it, not surprised. It's going to be That's very great. fascinating to me now to see what the message is going to be for, for the day. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I keep them by my bed. So when I wake up in the morning, I do a kind of a similar thing, a little different, but but some similarities. I just close my eyes and I, you know, put it on top of the stack and keep my eyes closed. And I say, okay, so what is it I need to know today? And then I kind of just ruffle through them and I pick one. And it's like, oh, okay, well, (laughs) that's interesting. And then sort of like you, it's kind of like wait to see how that's going to be fitting for the day. So the different places that you that you traveled to, took the pictures, had these experiences. Uh, do you think that a lot of these places were seeded by Pleiadians? Was that very yes. evident to you? Yes. That, um, some of the areas where you were uh, visiting were seeded by the the Pleiadians in future Yeah, I do. Very. Later time, I mean, past times for, fu- mm-hmm. for future times. Well, <laughs> Time is an interesting thing, past time, future times, you know, um, back to the future. But bottom line is, yes, I felt strongly, and that's why it was so interesting to me, because what I wrote in those four days before I had, you know, before I knew I was going to do even any traveling, because I had been to Egypt, and the story was tugging on me, and you know, so I wrote what I wrote in those four days. And I had no idea that I would spend 10 years on and off traveling around to these other places, but it felt necessary. I felt like I, you know, people would say to me, well, where are you getting the money to go all of these places? And I said, I don't know. It just magically seems to appear when it comes to me that there's this next place that I need to go. And I did. I had a few other spots in mind that I never made it to, but there was sort of a point, and it was after Easter Island, that some part of me said, okay, you've done it. This is it. You, oh, yeah, you can Easter go someplace Island. else you want, but this was, where you, this was what you needed to do. This is it. 
you know, Easter Island was, it, it's a place that I never have really thought about before. I mean, it's it's been in the back of my mind, but when you described what was there and the the everything that happened uh, through the story about Easter Island, now I really want to go see it. Now, I've, now I really realize how important that place really is as an acupuncture point on the planet. Right. And what's interesting is that many it, it, the the weekend before I was going to Easter Island, there was I'm here in the Los Angeles area, and there was the person, this woman who is considered to be the expert on Easter Island, and she was giving a one day talk at UCLA, and I thought, my God, I have to go. So I went and I listened, and I was never so bored in my life because all she really talked about was. There were this many statues that had this length, and it was very, there was nothing magical. There was nothing, it was all numbers, numbers, and things that I learned there experientially and also from exploring some of the work of what I call the rogue archaeologists the ones who have broken away from mainstream and are actually looking at at the things that they find instead of trying to fit the things that they find into the theories that they already have. Mm-hmm. So as I began to look at that, there was a whole other layer to Easter Island that nobody was touching on. So it's a much richer heritage I mean, they're, it's being treated, and I haven't read anything recent, so I don't know if there's been changes, but it was basically being treated like a Polynesian culture, and it's so much more. Its ancient um, history is much larger than Polynesia. So how long does it, travel time, um, how long did it take you to fly there? Long. <laughs> I flew, there's only two places, and again, unless that's changed in the last couple of years, I don't know. There, are, When I went, there were only two ways to go to Easter Island. And one was either from Papiete, Tahiti, or from Santiago, Chile. And there was a flight that goes from, well, I think it was like a seven-hour flight, from, from uh, Papiete, to Easter Island, and then continues on to Santiago. It goes twice a week in that direction and twice a week coming in the other direction. So it is considered to be the most isolated landmass in the world. In other words, it's the furthest away from any other landmass than any place else. I mean, it's this little dot out there in the middle of nowhere. So I had to leave from Los Angeles at take a midnight flight to Papiete, stay there. I think, you know, just checked into a hotel. It was kind of weird because everything is got there on a Sunday and everything was closed and everybody speaks French. And I don't speak French. <laughs> it was very weird. But stay, I had made a hotel reservation. I stayed there and at 11 o'clock at night took a flight that got me to Easter Island early the next morning. It was very surreal. Um, I everything about it, it, its otherness, is so apparent. You get I, when I got there, 
Um, it, it's very humid. I don't know if it is the whole year round or it was when I went, but probably it, it's like that. So I got there in the early morning in the middle of a rainstorm, and you just walk it off the plane, and you feel like your clothes are beginning to mold immediately. So it, 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 from the get-go, you just get there, and it's unusual. And then, of course, the experiences I had were highly unusual. And I even had a connection with somebody to look up who didn't turn out to be quite as dependable of a guide as I had hoped, but then in some other ways he did. Yeah, I really, I really loved the way you wrote about him and, and the way he, uh, the character that you uh, had him to be. It, it was very, very, uh, I really got it. I really got how all that worked for you. Right. So right. I'm looking at the time here, and I would like to um, uh, pass you over to my co-host, Ariel, who has the switchboard. And I know that there might be several that are on the switchboard that want to talk to you. So would you be willing to talk to some of our star seats? Oh, certainly. Okay. So, Ariel, back to you. Yes. Uh, Diana, okay. we'll talk later, okay? Okay, Thank good. Thank you so much okay. for writing this book and for being who you are. It just oh. really... Thrilled me to know that you were on the planet, okay? Yes, thank you very much. <laughs> Back to you, Ariel. Okay. <clears throat> well, we have we have a caller that has been waiting since before the show to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, we're gonna be talking to Tammy first. Tammy is uh one of our staff. Hey Tammy. Hello there. Well, hey. Diana, I'll tell you. I since I read your book, I don't even know what to do with myself. Really? Um, <laughs> I I felt like I wandered aimlessly for days, and um, nothing could match to the experience I had reading this book. Wow. Uh, to all, all of our star seeds out there, this is this should be required reading. Um, I'm just overwhelmed by the amount of truth. It's so refreshing and wonderful to have a book cover to cover full of the truth. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. I, I live here in Arkansas at the Crystal Grid, and when you ex- explained your experiences with the grid lines, oh, my gosh, it just lit me up and gave me so much hope to know that there are our goddesses and warriors out there like you doing the work. Well, thank you. And um, I think I can probably say the same to you. Oh. <laughs> um, it was, it's so well written. I, 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 I got lost in the words. I didn't know if I was the character, if you were the character, if you're making up the character. <laughs> right off the bat when you were at the foot of the, um, had the character, at the um, Sphinx, at the foot of the Sphinx. They had me right there. <laughs> it's like, cool. oh, my goodness. This is just just right. That's great, because I really wanted it very much to be something that the reader would really identify with Cassie and go on the journey. Oh, my goodness. I felt my oh, – I don't want to tell any parts, but I – it felt like I was experiencing some of the things you were writing about. It's like, oh, buckle up, buttercup. 
<laughs> Good, you probably were. <laughs> um, to everyone out there, um, please get this book. Um, I missed two dinners. Uh, I couldn't even. I didn't even stop to eat. But then sometimes I would have to stop and just digest what I had just read because it just. Lavender has a saying: "Truth knows its own source," and it. I would just read it and just be so lit up. Atlantis, um, Easter Island. Ooh, what a picture you painted of Easter Island. I think about it every day since I've read your book. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to read it again, and, and I cannot wait. Tomorrow I'm going to order the glyphs. Um, oh, great. You'll love them. You'll love them. Oh, You'll love them. I, well, I've already seen um, what they look seen like. You've seen Lavendars? Um, no, I, I was on your website. and, and um, Oh, okay. okay. I've seen some of it there, but I cannot wait to get a hold of those. And, You'll uh, have a good time with them. They're really... Sometime come to Arkansas and be with our, us and our soul family. I will. Oh, we would so love to have you and the land. Oh, my goodness. It's a dream of mine now to sit on the mountain with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's a date. I can't say when, oh, but it's a date. Oh, we're on. Um, shoo. Uh, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. I could go on all night, but I don't want to give up parts, and it's real hard to speak to you and not talk about parts of the book, but I don't want to ruin it for everyone because it's just so exciting. Yeah, that, that's the trippy thing talking about it to make sure you don't give away the key points. Well, yeah, it's the, hard because I hard. want to talk to you about specific things, but I won't. <laughs> right, another time. <laughs> so we must sit on the mountain together. Okay. Thank you for being on the planet and writing this book and finding Lavendar. Um, My goodness. I could go on all night and just babble about your works. Um, Well, thank you so much. We have my friend Leslie to thank for me finding Lavendar. So thank you, Leslie, if you're listening. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Leslie, and I believe I'll be having the pleasure of meeting her soon. I think you will be. I believe so, and... um, once again, to everyone that's out there listening, I cannot recommend this anymore. This is like um, <laughs> the, the Starseed Digest. Mm. <laughs> mm. So um, I won't keep you any longer, and I hope to see you very soon. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Tammy. So um, if anyone else has a a comment or question for Diana, if you're already on the switchboard, you'll need to just press 1 so we know you want to come on the air. And if you're listening on the computer, then you have to pick up the phone and dial 917-889-8292. And then once you're in, press 1 so that we know you want to come on the air. So... I am I'm fascinated. So you have been to um you've been to Egypt twice, you've been to um the what do you say, Peru or Bolivia in that area in the, Easter the, Island. Easter Island. And, um and Stonehenge. Uh, England and Scotland. Uh where did you Yucatan- go in Scotland? Uh, where did I go in Scotland? Yeah. Well, we drove up through the 
because it, it ended up being that I needed to be at this one site that I really didn't know very much about beforehand. Um, there were a few places that I kind of had in mind that I had read something about, but it turned out this one site called Kalanish, which is on a, an island in the North Atlantic. Um, it's a small island. I don't know what, what the size of it is, but it's small. But it is covered with this giant standing stone formation. Um, on the website and where the pictures are, there are a couple different shots, I think, of uh, this place called Callanish, which they call the Scottish Stonehenge because it has all these astronomical alignments. But it's, it's very different energetically than Stonehenge. I love Stonehenge, but there was something about maybe it's the remoteness of Callanish uh, and some of the experiences that I had there, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just an unusual place, a really unusual place. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually I'm looking at, the, at the, the picture that's on your website, and, yeah, I mean, it's similar to Stonehenge, but very different. But very different. Very different frequency. Yeah. Are you looking yeah, at the one then, where the blue stones? It's sort of uh, blue tinted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. The, yes. Yes. Just um, I had never seen those before. So oh, you said it's not you a have... well-known site. Um, <gasps> you know, I I I really did some research once it turned out that I knew I was going to be. Uh, well, in England, and as long as I was going to be there, you know, I just kind of felt my way through. But I, it, there was sort of a choice between going to two different places, and there would really only have been time for one. And it, it just sort of, I, as so many times doing this kind of journey, life would lead me, and I would follow sometimes willingly, sometimes a little reluctantly, like this isn't what I had in mind. But I was never disappointed. You know, I would end up in these places that I hadn't necessarily planned to go to, but there would always be a reason and it would always be a profound experience. So I mean, these sites are so energetically powerful if you have if you give them half a chance, I mean, obviously you need to go there and be open and be willing to receive and to feel. And, you know, for some people that's new or strange, especially standing around a bunch of stones. But once you give it a little practice, you begin to feel the difference between the different places. And I think that's, A, because they're marking different points in the planetary grid. There's different things happening at the different points. And, and of course, it's interesting because different type of stone is actually used in different places. So there was a knowledge amongst those who created these sites. Uh, nothing, it wasn't, oh, let's just get some local stones from the field over there and stand them up over here. No, no, no. There was much more intention put into everything. And then um, you've been to Yucatan. Um, I'm looking at the Temple of the Magicians. That looks pretty yeah. amazing. Yeah. That's a great shot. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you. Yucatan was uh, also a very interesting place and very and completely different from, say, Egypt. Totally different, but nonetheless powerful and unique. Wow, beautiful images. So um, just let me uh, tell everyone one more time, if you have a question or comment for Diana, you'll need to press 1 if you're already on the switchboard. And if you're listening on the computer, dial 917-889-8292, and then once you're in, press 1. So um, tell me about the, the Pleiadian glyphs. How did that come through? Well, it actually came through a little differently than because it's it, because it sort of they sort of popped through when I was already working on the Keeper of the Diary. Um, but you know, when you're writing a book, you, you want things to take place in a more compressed period of time so the story will move more quickly. In reality, they they uh, kind of came through over two and a half year period. And I go into that more in the glyph book itself, Meditative Magic, um, where I sort of, you know, spell it out step by step. This happened and this happened and this happened. But basically the sort of bottom line was I was already a meditator and I was getting headaches when I meditated. Out of nowhere it just started happening. And... I think there was this, I'm trying to remember the story, it's been a while, this friend of mine who was doing some conscious channeling, and I said, okay, well, let's see what she can tell me about these headaches. And what came through was something like, there's something you're seeing when, when you meditate. If you can draw that, put it down on a piece of paper, and focus on it, your headaches will go away. I thought, well, okay, that sounds interesting. So I just, you know, I used to sit at the top of my bed against the headboard and kind of a cross-legged position. And so I just said, you know, okay, show me. Show me if there's something I'm needing to see here. And sure enough, I, I did see sort of a geometric image so I did my best to draw what I saw and focus on it during, you know, kind of an open, closed-eye meditation. So it was an image. At this point, there was no words that came later. So I would just kind of, um, you know, put my eyes soft looking at it, and it would sort of, um, many of them, because they're, geometric in form, have this feeling when you look at them very softly, not focusing on them hard, but just softly, the lines will feel like they're moving and shifting. So that happened a little with the first one. And then what began to happen is over a period of time, a total of 16, well, they told me, I didn't, I didn't know what to call them, I was just calling them designs or whatever, and I, I thought they were artwork that I would eventually color in, and, you know, it would be like pretty mandala-type things. 
But then I came to realize that if I did that, it stopped the motion, this kind of pulsing that so many of them had. Um, And I was just calling them symbols, and I distinctly heard, we want to be called glyphs. And I thought, that's a weird word, glyph. So I looked it up and found out, of course, that it's not really a weird word. There's petroglyphs. There's, um, you know, there are... The Hebrew language is a glyph language because they're like little pictograms that have both a sound and a meaning on on their own, plus they're a letter, like you write a word in Hebrew. Each of those letters sort of has a life of its own, plus it's like English. If if it says, you know, it'll have a phonetic um, component so that you can actually pronounce it. And so I thought, and then there's, of course, there's hieroglyphs from Egypt, so I thought, well, this really isn't that strange <laughs> that they want to be called glyphs, okay? So it was, um, it was, you know, a sort of story of development to how the names of each of them came. An abbreviated version is part of the story of the Keeper of the Diary. The longer and, and more specific um, description of the whole process is in the beginning of the glyph book, Meditative Magic itself. So it was a process that I I learned from. They taught me what to do with them. So do you have this, is this book set up with um, pages and pictures or cards or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun little book. And there's, there are, it's a, something like, I think, nine by nine and a half inches. It's almost square, thin, but on really nice paper. Uh, it's an art piece. So there, the glyphs, so there's, a, you know, a beginning, an intro. I, I, it kind of breaks down into what, how, and why, what they are, how to use them, why to use them. But then I felt I felt guided at the same time to make individual removable eight by eight inch cards because I thought these are really personal. It'd be nice for somebody to be able to leave the book itself, like on their coffee table, and let their friends look at it, but keep the cards for themselves. And I know people that will just keep even at work. They'll they'll keep one of the cards on their desk at their office. Um, the front has a glyph on it, the back has a small version of the glyph, and with the guidance called um, an expanded, something like an expanded explanation. So it will be very specific about what that glyph is and, and how it works. So the glyphs itself, the front part, even if you weren't to read the words, but I find the words, even after all these years, to be pretty profound. Um, but the glyph itself has frequency. So in other words, it's broadcasting. So you have it sitting at your desk at work. You have it sitting by your night table at night. And it's kind of like, um, not kind of like, it is broadcasting frequency. And the frequency it's broadcasting is exactly what it says on the back of the card. Um, Would you be okay with giving us an example of what one of them is? Uh, like um, one that you felt? 
me grab. I have many cliff books around. Let's see. There. Okay, I'll get to this one. Yeah, well, there's um, things like intention. Um, The one on the cover is called atonement, which actually means at one mint, the, you know, more old version of that word. And it's called the celestial messenger. And for instance, not a lot of light here. Hang on. Although that's not, I'm going to, there's a different one I'd rather share with you. But some, I'll just tell you the names of some. So that one is Atonement or Atonement, the Celestial Messenger. Another one is called Integrity, the Centering Point. There's one that's called Man Symbol which really has nothing to do necessarily for men only, but it's about the male frequency, the male energy, which is called the knowledge of cosmic law. There's one called synergy, the flow of, of universal force. So they, they have unusual, um, not obvious descriptions that you right. wouldn't so necessarily they- think of. Now, here's one of my favorites. It's very powerful. And it's kind of not the first glyph I would suggest that people start to work with. But it's called, and they all have um, like a three-letter, seemingly unpronounceable name, but that as you look at them, they begin to have their own logic and how to pronounce them. And it does give you a phonetic um, pronunciation. So this one is called Sarkan, which is S-K-N, and it's called the Union of Opposites, the Transmutation of Matter. Like I said, this is the most intense, but it's one of my favorites, so I'll start with it. So the Union of Opposites, the Transmutation of Matter. This is a glyph of great power and makes tremendous reserves of energy available to the self, with a capital S, in the process of transfer, the transformation of consciousness. It is a glyph to be approached with reverence and with clearly stated purpose of working with the light. The glyph, if, if worked with gentle perseverance, has the ability to break down barriers within the psyche and to heal ancient emotional wounds. It can literally take the user, quote, where no modern man has gone before, unquote. This glyph has the ability to open doors in consciousness that have only been accessed in recorded history by a very few. Their numbers are so small that they have all been known by name. They are the great artists, inventors, masters, yogis, and saints of all cultures. It has been said that humankind only uses 10% of its brain. This glyph has the potential of setting in motion a chain of reactions to open up the other 90%. The information and abilities contained therein are our birthright. This untapped capacity 
within ourselves is the next step in our evolution. These dormant talents hold keys for solving the problems of our times. The bringing together of opposites, the integration of the light and the shadow aspects of the self is so powerful that it can literally overcome the laws holding matter or material form in place. So that's pretty intense. That and is. what it's talking about, union of opposites. And isn't that really what it's all about? Aren't we here? Isn't it about unity? And isn't it about taking the, we, we live in this duality, but really, as we evolve and we grow and move sort of to a next step, those apparent dualities in 3D are no longer dualities. They're held within the whole. So this may have been a, a, a strong one to, to start out with, but visually it's really one of my favorites. It's very compelling to look at. And if you look at it softly, it just moves and changes. You can actually feel it working on you. Wow. Does that give you um, some thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that that is <laughs> very very powerful and not um not well, let's just say atypical. You know, a lot of uh, um symbols and images are in a lot of books, but they're not they're not like those. <laughs> I mean, that no, is these very, are not very powerful. They, it's like it's like uh, uh it's like a mystery school. It is. Yeah, it is. And it's very interesting because I was guided when putting the book together, and it really is an art piece. Um, and there's a limited amount of them left. I don't know whether it will be produced again. I hope it will. But mm, just the cardstock, everything, the price of everything has gone up so much that unless a, a larger entity were to take this over, once these run out, this will probably be the end of it. But I was guided to, so it's on a beautiful, they call it a clay coat um, paper, um, but it's all recycled, but it's on really like art paper. And there are different symbols from ancient cultures that are kind of scanned lightly behind the text of the book itself, not on the cards, but of the book itself. And there's also some, I was guided to use some images of some of the crop circles. Because this is all the same thing. It's about geometric form holding frequency. And that's what I believe the crop circles are all about. They're teachers. And that's what these glyphs, somebody, when the book first came out, uh, and I was getting a lot of mail, uh, I would often hear people refer to them as, as like, their friends, like they were ent- they're entities on, unto themselves. They're very, they are, I, I've never come across anything like them. I, 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 they did not come from me. They came through me. So, right. Right. Oh, that is, that is wonderful. I'm, I'm definitely going to get one, uh, both, both of the books, but I want to um, just let everybody know once again that your website is thekeeperofthediarybook.com and you have uh, another website that's meditative magic 
or com. Not. Yes. And you can Medi- also from the or from if you so the other site. So this book is called Meditative Magic: The Pleiadian Glyphs. Um, but on the keeper, the keeper of the diary book. Make sure you put in the word book. dot com. Uh, there'll be a tab in there that says, I think says glyph book or glyphs. I can't remember. So you can actually learn about it there, and it will take you into the meditative magic site, but not as deeply as if you go directly to the meditative magic site. Okay. All right. And I'll just mention, because you never know who's listening, the reason that I called the the site, the book book site, the keeper of the diary book.com, is because ever since that very first day of the beginning of the keeper of the diary, it has always wanted to be a movie. So if there's anybody listening who's in the film industry, um, get in touch. Well, we, we I called it the Keeper some... of the Diary book to leave room for the Keeper of the Diary movie dot com. Movie. Yes. I love that. Another I conversation. Love that. It's yeah. a movie. Oh, we, we've we've got a, a really good friend who is a um, film producer, director, casting director, Emmy nominated um, Lavender. We had to hook her up with Craig. Um, Sounds good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I'm sorry. I, I thought Lavender's mic was open. And Lavender's um, taking um, a, a, a little break <laughs> from our conversation. Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I thought her mic was open when I asked her the question. Um, but I just wanted to let everyone know your book is also on Amazon. And um, do you do any kind of uh, um, you know speaking? engagements uh, for your books? Um, I do from time to time. Um, I was for a while. I haven't been doing it for a while. Uh, it could happen. You know, I, I, I kind of ride the energy of what seems to be either appropriate in my personal life or where I'm guided with the book. So right now there's nothing of a public nature that has been arranged, but there could be. And if there would be, it would most likely be posted on the site. And if anybody wants to contact me directly, they can just do that at uh, thekeeperofthediary at gmail.com. Okay. Uh, we, have a, we have another caller that is um, waiting to come on the air. So okay. uh, as soon as they get out of the... Uh, the screening room, we will um, bring on another caller with a question or a comment. Okay. So uh, what is what is on the horizon for you? What you don't know. You just, go with the, you just go with the energy. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I find that works so much better than having ideas in my mind about how things should be going. Um, more and more, I'm... I, learning the fine art of surrender and allowing myself to be guided. You'd think with everything I've been through and described that I would have that down by now, but I think um, I've been a little stubborn in that area. So, you know, I have my visions, you know, like the film, but really my biggest job is to just be present. 
because that's where everything takes place after all. That's so true. That's so true. Um, so, okay, our, our caller is just about just about Almost ready. Here. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, we we always make sure that they have a question that's on topic, and uh, you know, just to to make sure that what my favorite <laughs> color is or something. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so um, you're going to be talking to Brett. Let me get the mic open here. Come on, spin, spin. Hello, Brett. You are on the air with Diana. Go ahead with your question. Hello, Ariel. Um, well, I didn't have. Sorry. Is this, um, it, I didn't have. Go ahead. I was. Are, are you? Are you our Brett that came to Arkansas? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last I thought day. your voice sounded familiar. Okay. Yeah. So, I miss you. if you want to talk talk about the glyphs. Yeah, absolutely. So, I was I'm just in traffic now driving back from this um quartz crystal site here in Arizona. Um and I kind of jumped in in the middle of the show and you started talk about how to, talking about the glyphs. And yesterday I was walking on the mountain behind my house and I kind of went off trail and found a little hieroglyph type thing etched into a rock. Um, so I just thought it was really cool, and I really resonated with the last glyph that you talked about. Uh, the one that I just, uh, the union of opposites? Yeah. Yeah, it's very powerful. It was fascinating. Yeah. And I really am intrigued with the book, hearing Tammy talk about it, uh, <laughs> I think she was pretty on point with putting it out to who it would resonate best best with. So, Brett, did you did you um, make a copy or a picture of the glyph that you saw on the on the rock? Yeah, I took a picture of it. It kind of looks like a little turtle um, with its hands up. It's like a circle with hands up and kind of three legs looking thing. Huh. Hmm. Yeah. It, do, you, do you think it's it like Native American, or do you think it's much older than that? Um, I think it's probably Native American because here in Phoenix, uh, you know, it's Native American land, so probably. Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. So yeah, make sure you pick up a copy um, of both of Diana's books because. Um, they, after after you've already been to Arkansas, I know that it will really, it will really resonate with you. And and uh, well, we sure we sure would like to see you again. <laughs> right. No, I would yeah, love when to the, make it trip out there. Well, whenever you're ready, just let us know because you're always welcome. Awesome. Yeah, I just wanted to say really quickly how you know I love everything she's doing and really excited to get the book and get to read it. Thank you. I, I think you'll enjoy yourself on many levels. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brett, so nice to hear from you. Thanks for calling in. And uh, um, have, have, enjoy the books when you get them. I yeah. will. And thanks for my quick little speaking online. You're welcome. 
<laughs> you take care, sweetie. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Bye Brett. Uh, yeah, Brett came with us um, to Arkansas, and uh, oh, he just... He was a wonderful, delightful person. So, big hug to ah, you. So, so nice um, of you. Get to meet so many of your, so many of the clan. It's, well, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, we did. Um, I, I'm kind of lost count now. I think we're like 16 or 17 um, events in Arkansas, and uh, and we just the people that come there, they know each other. They, they, it's like a family reunion, so that's why we've been calling it a, a family reunion. Um, it's wonderful when star seeds come together in a very powerful place like that. Um, so, yeah, we're looking forward to the day that the door opens for you to join us there, Diana. Mm, thank you, thank you. There will be a day, I promise you that. Yeah, yeah of course there will be. So, um, once again, your website is the Keeper of the Diary Book. Dot com, And um, when you talk to Lavender uh, privately, um, ask her about Craig. Okay. And uh, maybe, maybe she, can, uh, she can hook you up. Okay. So I want to thank you so much for um, spending time with us and our audience this evening. It's been a pleasure, and I know that um, we are looking forward to meeting you, and uh, I really encourage everyone to pick up copies of both of these books definitely written for starseed and uh, welcome to the family thank you so much it's really been a pleasure to be on with you guys and you know knowing that we all speak the same language it is it's, it's not very comforting to know people that um, <clears throat> I think it was Richard Bach um, quote it's why why I'm not getting this verbatim but um, why do you feel like you feel like you're a lonely outsider and a little bit odd, but all that's wrong is that you just haven't met your family. Right. <laughs> so right. Um, that's wonderful to have you now as, as part of our family and community. Mm, thank you. It's uh, really a pleasure. Obviously, it took me a while on my journey to, to uh, come to a place of realizing that there was a family. Well, right. You know, I wasn't just on my own, so it's it's lovely to right. know. Right. Well, the word's getting out there, and and people are finding each other. So yeah, we're so happy that that you found us. Well, thank you. I am too. <laughs> well, with that, um, we're going to wrap it up now. And um, special special thanks to our guest Judith Diana Winston. Her book, The Keeper of the Diary. Her website, thekeeperofthediarybook.com, as well as Meditative Magic, the Pleiadian Glyphs, and the meditativemagic.com um, is dedicated to that. So until we meet in person, Judith, much love to you, and thank you so much for being with us this evening. Thank you, and much love to all of you. So from all of us here at Starseed Radio Academy, Have a great week. We'll be back next week. And until we meet again, please remember to count your blessings every day and be grateful for what we have. Good night, everyone. Good night, everyone. Good night. 
You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.